This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Good morning, I'm Philip C and welcome to The Breakfast Grill. It's the start of the new year and with a new PHBN Unity Government, we wanted to get a sense on how the role of Parliament and the judiciary will evolve with this new government. There's no better person to help us unpack the many moving parts with author, professor and constitutional expert, Dato' Dr. Haji Shah Salim Farooqi. A very good morning to you, Professor. How are you keeping? Thank you so much, Philip. I'm fine. Um, and uh, may I take this opportunity to wish your uh, listeners a happy new year. I also pray for peace on earth and goodwill towards all human beings. Let us hope that we have more peace in 2023. But let's take a look back on history. If you reflect on the past three years, right, it has been incredibly turbulent in the in Parliament. Do you think the elected and represented legislative body has served as well? Yeah, Philip, if we have to talk about whether they have served us well, perhaps you could permit me to first of all ask what are the ways in which Parliament is required to serve the nation. I, I know this will be uh, possibly overwhelming for listeners. Mm-hmm. I jotted down 11 areas. Let me just mention them and we'll take up uh, two or three. First of all, in political theory, an elected and representative legislature is the central pillar of a democratic polity. Under the Constitution of Malaysia, would you believe, out of 183 articles of the Constitution, 57 articles require Parliament to perform a number of functions. So 57 actually are addressed to Parliament's functions. Number one, the House of Representatives, the Devan Rayat, gives legitimacy to the government. So, for example, recently, Tato Sri Anwar Ibrahim got himself a two-thirds majority. Now that's, he has legitimacy. Number two, parliament is the highest lawmaking authority. It's not supreme because constitution is supreme, but it is the highest lawmaking authority. Number three, it is the grand inquest of the nation, by which I mean it is supposed to scrutinize executive policy to keep the political executive answerable, accountable, and responsible to the representatives of the people. Not much of a job it does, but it's required to do that. That's why we are called... (laughs) responsible government. Mm. The government must be kept responsible. Number four, it must control national finance. Number five, it must control emergency powers. Even though emergency powers are very broad, parliament has a role to possibly even lift the emergency ordinance, uh, emergency proclamation, and to annul all the emergency ordinances. Most people do not know. They believe that once emergency is declared, parliament is sent off on a holiday. That's not correct. And the Article 150, Clause 3, the emergency proclamation, the emergency ordinances must be laid before Parliament. But that's the issue, isn't it? Because there was that watershed moment when Prime Minister Tan Sri Muhyiddin Yassin declared an emergency then. Was that unconstitutional then? Yeah, if you don't mind, we look into that, certainly. Uh, I think Tan Sri Muhyiddin Yassin was violating the spirit of the Constitution. Uh, by not bringing parliament back to session. Mm. In fact, I'm sure you're aware, Philip, even the young de Pertonagong in many public statements advised the prime minister to summon parliament as soon as may be so that parliament can perform its role of scrutinizing mm. the emergency proclamation and ordinances. But the prime minister was reluctant because he didn't want to face a debate in yeah, the Devan That motion of confidence, Yes, he, he was worried that... Mm. They may be. He was worried that if the emergency uh, proclamation 
is rejected by parliament, then critics will say, this amounts to a vote of no confidence. Mm. So back to the original question about whether it served as well, you had gone through its roles and objectives beyond emergency, uh, controlling emergency uh, procedures. What else is the yes, role yes. of parliament? Um, then, of course, uh, the Devan Rath represents electoral constituencies. Mm. Each MP represents one constituency. So in that respect, Devan Rath is the voice of the people. Uh, next one's number seven. The Devan Rath approves electoral boundaries, which the election commission submits to it. Uh, sad to say, the election commission doesn't have the final say. It merely draws up the proposals. Right. And Devan Rath, a political body, then actually approves those uh, boundaries. Number eight, individual MPs help to redress the grievances of their constituents. This is a very important constituency role in our system, constituency role. Number nine, the Devan Nagara represents the 13 states of the federation. So each state has um, two senators, whether you are Perlis or you are Pahang in terms of size, each has two. Then along with the two, along with the 13 states, 13 times two, 26 senators, there are four senators representing the federal territories, two for KL, one for Putrajaya, one for Labuan. Then there are 40 appointed senators who are supposed to represent minorities or marginalized groups, but it doesn't work that way. Why not? Well, what happens is this, that the government of the day uses this as a uh, vehicle of patronage. Uh, mm -hmm. Those Often those who lose the Devan Raat election are appointed to the Devan Nagara. Uh, but in one respect, uh, it's useful. Sometimes the PM wants to bring a very capable person from outside of parliament to join his government. The person must belong to parliament. You, and you've not even finished your list of key objectives here. It's the issue that it's all perfect on paper, but the execution is so flawed. Yeah. Well, th that is true, actually, Philip. In every country of the world, there's a massive gap between theory and reality. And, and the reason for that is this, that uh, institutions are as good as the people who administer them. Mm. I, I'm not pessimistic about this because we are a young nation. 65 years is not a long time in the life of a nation. And I have to very frankly say this, many of our institutions don't have cultural roots. They were imported from abroad. For example, the doctrine of ministerial responsibility was imported from abroad. But it's not really part of our culture to hold the leader publicly responsible, to shame him, to question him. That's not part of Asian culture. There's a lot of feudalism. So the doctrine of ministerial responsibility is beautiful part of the Westminster parliamentary tradition. But it doesn't quite gel in with the ideas. Uh, I find it very country. interesting because when, when we talk about in contrast, right, our parliamentary system versus maybe all those around the world, perhaps the distinction here is that we don't infuse the cultural elements of our peace. And so we tend to try and assume lock, stock, barrel, sure. what happens in the West and assume that it works perfectly well here it in the East. It won't work at all. Uh, anywhere in the world it won't work actually because uh, law is only one of the many institutions mm. that moral society along with law, there is custom and tradition, there is religion, there is morality, there is history, there is geography. So I, I think it has to be a holistic approach. Our education system doesn't address the issue of inculcating values. And Philip, this is something very close to my heart. I'm very happy to meet you again on this. There is no knowledge of the constitution. 
that, that's, I think, the biggest challenge, as you said just now. The Constitution is a very weighty document, 200 pages, 163 of articles. Yes. It is the the domain of the high intellect, the, the top 1% to 2%, sure. the intellectuals, right, that, that wax lyrical over the Constitution. How do we democratise the application and usage of the Constitution, especially in our parliamentary setting? Yeah. Then? Um, I, I have a suggestion about that. I'll mention it right now. I, I personally think uh, that we should have an institute of parliamentary affairs. Mm. Just like civil service has intan, the lower judiciary has uh, ilkap. What does parliament have? Mm. Our MPs need to be educated on the ABC, the fundamentals of our Perlembagaan Persekutuan, federal constitution. They need to be educated about the fact that parliament is not supreme, that there are fundamental rights. That the regions, the states, the federal, the states of the federation have rights. Sabah Sarawak have special rights. That this constitution actually was, despite all its flaws, a masterpiece of compassion and compromise. There was a lot of give and take. But it doesn't work that way. As one of the, as many people have expressed, the constitution is very selectively used or weaponized by many people. Absolutely. It's become yeah. a boogeyman. I yes, think, yes. I feel many times, many people paint the constitution as anti-monarchist, anti-Malay, anti-minority, anti-everything that's good about this country. And it's a function of the lack of education about yes, yes, the beauty is. of the document. And so again, it is the function that, if you reflect, especially on the past three years, you've said before that the parliament was in, in light to what the queen had in 2002, I believe, an end Horribilis. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. It has been a terrible year, right? How do we make amends? How do we improve the efficiency and efficacy of parliament so that it becomes an institution that views the constitution as truly a sacred document? Sure. Uh, a great deal can be done, and I'm happy to report to you that uh, despite three bad years for democracy, uh, in the last year, uh, during the time of uh, after the resignation of Tansir Mehdin, I think some improvements were made in the sense that parliamentary committees became a little bit more yep. prevalent. And even though the prime minister did not really have the massive majority that would be needed to make changes during the time uh, of the prime minister after Tan Sri Mehdin, a number of very significant changes were made. We passed the Undi 18 law. Sabah Sarabak's rights were at least symbolically restored. Much more needs to be done. And of course, the anti-hopping law was passed. Mm. So at least the last year was not so bad. But I fully acknowledge that the year 2020 and 2021, really bad years, Parliament was deliberately marginalized. Mm. First of all, Parliament was not brought back to session. Article 55 says that Parliament must meet within six months after the last prorogation or dissolution. So what they did was... Parliament had gone off session in December. They brought back Parliament uh, to session in May for two hours. <laughs> Just to listen to the address by His Majesty. Then Parliament came back to session in um, June or July. It came back to session in September or so for the budget. Next year, 2021, in January, emergency was declared. Parliament was totally bypassed. Parliament was uh, kept away because during an emergency that that 60-day rule doesn't apply of Article 55. And so Parliament was marginalized. It did not sit at all. It could not scrutinize, even though Article 150, Clause 3 allows Parliament to scrutinize the proclamation and to reject it and to annul, if need be, 
the emergency laws or ordinances, but parliament was not even sitting. Then the other very significant thing was this, billions of ringgit were allocated for government expenditure without going through parliament. Do you think a post-mortem needs to be done or an inquiry needs to be initiated to what happened during those two years when parliament did not sit? I think it should be done indeed. There is no, in these matters of uh, inquiry into um, how much was appropriated, how much was properly spent, was there any wastage, any hemorrhaging? I think there is no time limit. I think the present government should, uh, Who should manage the inquiry? look into that. Who should manage the inquiry? It'll have to be, it'll have to be some independent people and the, the best I can think of is uh, judges, but with experts uh, in finance. There are, there are plenty of good people, actually. There's no doubt about that. But it's just that our tradition has been that quite often when there are inquiries of this sort done, the reports are kept secret. <laughs> and let us hope that we take some lessons learned from these past yes. few years and make the most as we enter 2023. Now, we're going to take a short break and after the messages, we're going to get sure. Prof's take on the judicial system. Stay sure. tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Welcome back. I'm Phil C. And joining me is Professor Emeritus at Dr. Haji Shah Salim Faruqi as we reflect on how this new unity government will or will not shape our parliamentary and judicial system. You know, Prof, we had an earlier conversation on the parliamentary system, on how it was so challenging in the past two to three years. But let's turn our attention to the judiciary because the marginalization of judiciary wasn't a two, three-year issue. It was actually something that took decades, right? Three decades ago. And one could point to perhaps the improper removal of Tunsale Abbas and two senior jurists at that time, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, was about three decades ago. Was that the start of our judicial decay? Actually, Philip, independence, impartiality, integrity, and uh, legal acumen or ability, uh, these are issues that are multidimensional. As I had submitted earlier, institutions alone uh, cannot achieve constitutional ideals. You've got to have the right attitudes, right people. Now, our constitution in some respects is exceptionally good, mm. exceptionally good. Uh, just to give you one example, our judges cannot be dismissed by the executive without a tribunal of brother and sister judges investigating a judge. The constitution says a judge cannot be dismissed unless a tribunal of minimum five, present or past, local or commonwealth judges investigate a judge. Now, this is far better than the USA or UK, where parliament can dismiss a judge. In Malaysia, parliament cannot dismiss a judge. However, all in all, the factors that would contribute to a satisfactory judiciary are within the law as well as within politics. Uh, they are within the judiciary as well as outside the judiciary. I'm afraid culture, religion, tradition will all play a role. There is sadly, Philip, no great support for an independent, courageous, innovative judiciary in this country. May I just point out to you, when in the 1980s, 1988, Tonsale and brother judges were being victimized, yep. politically victimized, was there a massive outcry? I know a few NGOs, Bar Council and a few others, and a few judges stood up to support 
their victimized brothers. But all in all, actually, the people accept it. But do you think, I mean, fast forward to now, I mean, just the past few months with the federal court decision to uphold the SRC international case involving former Prime Minister Dato Sri Najib Raza, is that a watershed moment where now you're seeing the judiciary reinvigorated, really now upholding the values of independence, integrity and impartiality? Is this the turn of events that's going to strengthen the judicial system? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think the judiciary is in renaissance. In 1988, a judicial winter had set in. However, I have to mention this to you, this didn't happen overnight. Since the beginning of the new century, early 2000 or so, there were judicial decisions coming in which were highly creative, which were supportive of the Constitution, which were supportive of human rights. These were what could be said, few straws in the wind. Many of us cynically said, a few swallows do not a summer make. But actually, the effect now is being felt. The judiciary is in renaissance. Mm. The constitution is moving from the peripheries to the centre. What enabled the renaissance? I wonder out loud, right? When did this happen? Ultimately, in my view, maybe I'm very naive. Ultimately, in my view, actually, it's a matter of uh, human beings making a difference. Justice Hishamuddin Yunus... Before that, Justice Abdul Malik, Gopal Sriram, Ma Wenkwai, mm. uh, Richard Malanjan, Justice Zainun Ali, the present Chief Justice Tun Maimun, Justice Nalini Padmanathan, they are making a difference. They are possibly in a minority in many cases. But the point is this, they express their view boldly, they express their view creatively. And that often actually provides the impetus for other judges to follow. I, I think a great decision, even if a dissenting judgment, is like a small pebble thrown on a placid lake surface <laughs> where the ripples go far. Yes. Uh, I think some of these decisions were dissenting judgments, but they left their mark. And clearly what is happening lately is, as a student of constitutional law, I have to say this, last time constitutional issues were raised and the judges would sidestep them convert or demote the case from constitutional law to administrative law. Yeah. Now what is happening is this, that the constitution is being imported into ordinary context. So, for example, someone's property is compulsorily acquired. He's given compensation as is required by the constitution. Income tax comes and says, aha, you have to pay income tax on the amount of compensation you got. And the court said, nothing doing. That's so, not possible. Yeah, but it's so interesting what you say, right? That it's the judicial system that helps us interpret the constitution in the most practical way, but yes. helps us bring colour to the constitution, makes it creative, and hence why the institution is only as good as the individuals sure. that come through, which then brings to mind then, you know, the role of the JAC, the Judicial Commission. How can they serve the government better or even the rap yet better in appointing judges that reflect this creative, innovative, thoughtful, but still highly principled values. Yeah. Let me just mention this, uh, uh, Philip, and uh, I'm speaking a little bit from experience because I had the great honour and privilege of being a member of the Judicial Appointments Commission for two years. The Judicial Appointments Commission is a misnomer. It doesn't appoint, it merely recommends. Mm. So it's not a Judicial Appointments Commission, it's a Judicial Vetting or Judicial Recommendation Commission. Long before the Judicial Appointments Commission, the Constitution provides a remarkable consultative process. The Prime Minister consults with all the top judges. Then the Prime Minister advises the King. 
the king then consults with the majlis raja raja the conference of rulers the king then appoints sadly because the king is generally bound by advice the prime minister has his say in the appointment of judges and some of the very great judges were not promoted because mm-hmm. they were too independent minded justice abdul malik justice hishamuddin uh, come to mind then the judicial appointments commission was created what it does is it interviews candidates it allows members of the bar to apply it then recommends names basically it vets it recommends names to the chief justice who then recommends the name to the prime minister but the prime minister can say i don't like these names send me some more names yeah ultimately the pm has his way the only safeguard right now is this once in a blue moon majlis raja raja the conference of rulers will raise an objection to a judge because the judge has a bad record of unwritten judgments or some other such factor which the majlis may know but the chief justice or the pm ignored and in all fairness to the pm he acts on the advice of the chief justice there was a chief justice who recommended a judge who had 35 unwritten judgments and yet the judge was recommended from the high court to the court of appeal court of appeal to the federal court he had 35 unwritten judgments justice delayed is justice denied so the pm basically relies uh, on the advice of the cj of gudo of course the pm consults most probably he consults the attorney general so there is a extensive process of yeah. consultation but nevertheless ultimately the pm has the last say and that's why i like to conclude our conversation with this question where you say pm has the last say in 2023 we are having a government which has a close to two thirds majority yes. do you expect major changes with respect to the constitution in 2023 or do you think that the power of the pm will be displayed through the lack of action I will only say that I pray I hope that the PM along with tackling the economy will appoint independent committees to advise him on constitutional reform we didn't have the time I humbly recommend the appointment of a jud- of a law reform commission one of the thing the law reform commission should recommend is judicial appointments commission should be constitutionalized at the moment it's an ordinary act of parliament and because it's an ordinary act of parliament it cannot override the constitutional procedures of the pm having the last say but if it is constitutionalized put into the constitution the judicial appointments commission uh, at the moment is uh, in my view not ideal out of 9 um there are 1 2 3 4 5 senior judges the chief justice plus 3 uh, extra future judges plus one more judge so there are uh, five judges there are four appointees distinguished persons i personally think the chief justice and the chief superior judges uh, should not have a role on the judicial appointments commission judicial appointments commission should consist of at least one person from the bar there should be at least one academician mm. there should be some retired judges and there should be some members of the public because justice is not simply a, a matter of uh, legal interpretation justice should be actually what the ordinary person thinks justice is um uh, there should be on the judicial appointments commission and on the judiciary more inclusiveness of men and women malays and non malays sabas arabians and west malaysians and minorities so i think judicial appointments commission should be constitutionalized we have many models available around the world we can easily recommend to the prime minister 
Prof, thank you for your advice and insights. That's all the time we have. Thank you again, Professor Emeritus Dr. Haji Shah Salem Faruqi. He's on The Breakfast School as we unpack the workings of Parliament and the judiciary and the dynamics involved with the new PHBN Unity Government. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.